You're listening to a short cast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, shaping the post-COVID world series, a digested version of our live online public event series. This event was recorded on 2nd March 2021. A full version is available to download via the LSE website or from your usual podcast provider. Welcome. My name is uh, Nick Robbins. I'm a professor in practice for sustainable finance at the Grantham Research Institute at the LSE. And it's my real pleasure to welcome you to this event, Financing a Green and Just Recovery from COVID-19. This event is part of the 2021 LSE Festival. And we really want to focus in the next hour on generating some ambitious ideas for the year ahead. Clearly, 2021 will be dominated by how the global economy combines recovery from COVID-19 with the shift to an inclusive and sustainable economy. Leading figures in government and business and civil society have all pledged to build back better, but the response to date does not yet match the scale of the challenge. Before COVID, our economic system was unsustainable, unequal and unstable, and we have to ensure we don't go backwards. So to bring some practical insights to these challenges, these opportunities, we have four leaders with us today. First, we have Naeem Abu Jaudi, who is the CEO of Candrium uh, since 2007, but his background in investment and asset management goes back many years before that. Then we have Sharon Burrow, General Secretary of the International Trade Union Congress, the ITUC, which represents over 200 million workers across the world. Ratin Roy is also joining us from New Delhi, a managing director at ODI for research and policy, and previously an economic advisor to the Prime Minister of India. And then Maria Marie Thomas, CEO of the UK's Green Finance Institute, with a long career in the banking sector. So I'd like to turn first to you, Naeem, and really get your thoughts about what you're seeing in the investment industry as we emerge from covid and how particularly investors and asset managers can help to advance efforts for this green and just recovery. So, Naim, please, over to you. It is fair to say that for many years we have missed the warning signs that are today impacting our planet and our society. As you highlighted, Nick, we have to build back better. We have to turn this recovery into an opportunity to build into green, growing and more inclusive economy. And I I think the silver lining of this COVID crisis, it's a wake-up call. And today we have the stars that are aligned between the people who are willing to change, empowering the government to move forward, but also the businesses and the, the financial sector is ready to jump in. And we can recognize that there's some positive news and good news going in the right direction. I would like to list some of them. More than 110 countries today are committed to becoming carbon neutral by 2050, which represents 65% of the global CO2 emissions. We have 20% of the global market cap of companies that have committed to cut emissions at scale. Last but not least, the investment industry is also moving into the ESG investments. And uh, just as we see the numbers, we moved from 20 trillion five years ago to 40 trillion that are invested in the ESG investment business, which is a huge amount. Just looking back 20 years ago, when I, I used to cover the ESG part of the business, it was like shouting in the desert. At that time, the whole market was only 2 trillion to compare with 40 trillion 20 years later. And in each business meeting we have with institution clients, they are all asking, for advice on ESG 
and on how to implement ESG in their portfolio. Another positive news is the fact that, as you said, this pandemic has brought the S at the forefront. And clearly today, we are seeing the interdependence between the E and the S together. And we cannot manage E without managing or looking at the S. And clearly, we have to see how to accelerate towards the climate action while avoiding the social disruptions that is already here and not continuing to widen the social disruption. Then for that, we need huge investment in order to find the right balance between the loss of jobs in the high intensive energy sectors and also the creation of new jobs in greener business. And I think we have all a role to play, governments, first of all, helping through fiscal advantage, limiting the subsidies to channel assets into the real economy. I think implementation of a global carbon pricing system is key to reinvest part of the benefit in the E, but mainly in the social aspect. And this is key as well. And here, I would like to talk a little bit of the investment and the financial sector. I think we have a duty and we have a role to play. First of all, we can accelerate change through channeling capital into projects that will facilitate a green and a fair transition. We have to fully integrate, this is the second element that is key, climate and social aspect as risk and opportunity in everything we do in the whole financial system. We have to continue developing financial instruments that have direct or indirect impact for greening the economy or social bonds, for instance. And last but not least, as an asset manager representing investors, we have a duty to practice what we preach at our level, but also as an investor, uh, we have also, number four, a duty to continue bridging the gap on education, and that is key. The last element I would like to highlight is active ownership is key because it will have a real impact on companies and corporate, and they have also a key role to play in the fair and just transition. Well, Naeem, you're clearly out of the desert, which is great. Sharon, if I can turn to you in, in, in Brussels, how do you see this, particularly in terms of the, the sort of jobs and livelihoods crisis we face coming out of COVID? And how do we connect that to the, the climate and the nature crises? Nick, this is probably the biggest challenge we face. There's no doubt that recovery must be just, sustainable and inclusive. And if we want one example of just how hard that's going to be beyond climate, beyond the breakdown in uh, the labour markets, then have a look at the ugly side of vaccine nationalism. So we have serious work to do and it will take all of us. But if we're going to have a just, sustainable and inclusive recovery with a resilience that ensures protection and security against future shocks, then for working people, that means a new social contract with five critical demands. They are jobs, jobs and jobs, climate-friendly jobs with just transition. That's the heart of security for working people. But they must actually be decent work. So a floor of rights as we see a breakdown in the labour market where increasingly now 60% plus of the global labour market works informally. That is no rights, no social protection, no rule of law, no minimum wages. This is not a foundation of resilience to build a future on. 
And then we need universal social protection. I think when you look at the impact on the poorest and the poorest countries, it's just a global scandal that 75% of the world's people have little or no social protection. We need global solidarity to build systems that underpin resilience, not just for workers and their families, but indeed for business when, in fact, the crisis is on. And there will be further shocks. So finance is critical and the ESG lens cannot be undone. When you look at the two other demands we have, it's about equality. It is income but it's all, and sharing prosperity, but it's also about gender and race. And if we're building an inclusive future, then ESG sits at the core and finance, as I said, is critical. All investment must have a sustainability lens. We can't go back and say we need 5 10 20%. They're the targets we were at a decade ago. But if finance, whether it's a company investing, a government investing or indeed private investment or our pension funds, it must have a sustainability lens that is about decent work and rights and the environment. Because if we are serious, Nick, we cannot build a future on the dehumanising exploitation of too many of our global supply chains today or the carbon emissions that have polluted our world and put the planet at risk for livability of people and business, or indeed environmental destruction in terms of our waterways and oceans and our forests. So we would say to you three major things. One is all investment, pension funds, private equity, corporate investment, government investment must have that sustainability and indeed a justice lens. Secondly, we need to make sure that disclosure is at the helm of that. And the third one is that we must look at global solidarity. Some of this, as I said, is about, you know, sharing wealth, looking at debt relief, looking at the capacity for liquidity swaps and special drawing rights, whatever it takes. So we have a lot to do to build a level playing field. We want business to succeed, but not if it's exploitative and not if it destroys the environment because that can't survive and we can't survive if we're about a seriously stable and sustainable future where people can live on this planet. Thank you so much, Sharon. Ratin, over to you. Really, really looking forward to your thoughts, particularly from a uh, emerging and developing country perspective. How does it seem for you, this green and just recovery? Is Build Back Back still a, a catchphrase or how do we really fill it with some substance? Over to you, Ratin. So the first point I want to make is partly hackneyed and partly influenced by COVID, which is the same old point that emerging economies have been making for years. The cost of capital in emerging economies is way too expensive because of regulatory and policy risks that add to the risk-weighted cost of capital. The attitude of the European Union does not help when they decide to adopt, if I may say so, a Jesuitical approach to this problem and sanction capital that they perceive is not green. I think the time has come 
for the West to recognize that it's not that the time has been there for five years. I said this in Paris. That for emerging economies, we are not trying to rebuild a bunch of dirty stuff that we have done for a hundred years to gain prosperity. We are trying to gain prosperity by improving productivity. And I think we can all agree here, and certainly in my career it's been the case, and that's why I care about green, otherwise, frankly, I wouldn't, that everything that I do that is green improves productivity and improves the dignity of human labor. If I go green on my energy systems, I stop young children going to my coal mines and digging coal out with their bare hands. There's a huge dividend in terms of productivity, the dignity of labor, and what Sharon said, decent jobs to going green. But the financial markets do not recognize this one whit, one whit in the cost that they assign to regulatory risk. Rather, all they seek to do, including Basel, is sanction non-green, not reward green. So this has to change. I think this is particularly important after COVID. It's point one B. Because what you're seeing across the world is a profit-led recovery, which I think is profoundly unjust. And if you're going to talk about our green future, I'm afraid that if that green future does not include I know Sharon will agree, but I'm saying this to the entire audience, an active macroeconomic policy to increase the share of wages in total output post the green recovery, then there's going to be no green recovery because I would be the first to oppose it. So that's point one. I think this is a crisis that COVID has brought to our future and it's at the bottom of a just transition. If a just transition means that the polluters of yesterday become the profit earners of today. If British Petroleum, Reliance Industries India, De Beers, hmm? General Motors, the polluters of yesterday are going to be the profit makers from green today, you are going to have a revolution in your hands and the world of finance had better wake up and understand this. My second point, so I made my first and second points there. I thought they were 1A and 1B, they're 1 and 2. To paraphrase, we need to build back better by making sure that the share of wages and small businesses in total output goes up and not down. And if green does not do that, I will be the first to call it out. The second part is more positive. I'm delighted that we are moving away from a unipolar focus on renewables to a focus on important things like the built environment and agriculture. And I'll tell you why as an economist, I think this is important. Renewables are an intermediate good. A unit of energy can be used to light a light bulb in a village in India for a small child to get an education or to keep people, I imagine it's cold in London now, so to keep people in their shirt sleeves in comfortable central heating. From a purely green perspective, it doesn't matter the purpose to which this energy is used because, you know, it's a unit of green energy. What do you care? You get your global warming target. You know, the interesting thing about agriculture and the built environment is that is not true. You cannot divorce the purposes to which energy is used from the source from which that energy is produced. I think this is a very, very important point. It's no coincidence that in the history of this world, capitalist polluters who have gone green has focused on energy. Of course they would, because that lets them off the hook in terms of the choices regarding what is energy used for and who is consuming it? 
you are able to divorce that question, as I just illustrated, from the question of how clean is the input produced. You cannot do that with housing. You cannot do that with agriculture. So I think finance needs to shift its focus increasingly to agriculture and housing because that would be far more just and I think far more progressive than this silly unipolar focus on energy that we have seen over the last 20 years. Thank you. Thanks, Ratin. Ria Marie, I know that you work with a lot of financial institutions in terms of encouraging them not just to make commitments, but also to find mechanisms which can channel the finance into uh, the real economy. And I think sort of that actually this is, doesn't just stay in the financial system, but gets into the businesses and households and regions uh, across not just the UK, but across the world. So I'd be very interested in your thoughts and potentially actually the built environment. Ria Marie, over, over to you. Last year was a record-breaking year in terms of green and sustainable finance. We had something over $545 billion of bonds issued, which was twice as much as 2019 issuance. Sustainable lending reached almost $200 billion. And then we saw huge inflows into ESG-aligned funds. And that momentum is likely to continue or accelerate. We're not going back to this silent desert that poor old Naima had to navigate years ago. And not just because of heightened awareness of ESG risks, because of those posed by climate due to global zoonotic pandemics, or because investors have come to realise that ESG funds offer comparable or even in some cases better performance than conventional funds, but also because of the prospect of tighter regulations. Changes to MIFID II directive will encourage more retail flows into sustainable funds because financial advisors are now legally bound to ask a client about their sustainability preferences. So this is all going in the right direction when it comes to private finance. But to answer your question on how we translate all these commitments into investments in the real economy, and here in the UK, only 64% of financial transactions are primary investments into the real economy. I'm going to limit my comments to three points, and they are the race to trillions, pricing signals and education. So on the race to trillions, I mean, the race to zero is becoming the global default, as now you mentioned, with over 110 countries now signed up to net zero targets. And now increasingly, we're seeing the same for asset owners, asset managers and now the banks as well. But these long term commitments really quickly need to translate into short term milestones that are fully integrating climate and the associated social outcomes into core strategy and not purely as a risk and compliance consideration, but a strategy that focuses on positively redeploying capital. Shrinking to greenness is not a strategy that I'm gonna to sell to any mainstream financial chief executive. So what does that look like in practice? And there's a framework developed by my friend Dan Esty at Yale, which is based on analyzing leading organizations who have integrated climate considerations and ESG into their business models. It's a four-step pathway. I think it's really instructional for all types of business, including financial institutions that are really looking to move this beyond commitment and into practical action. Stage one is the initial engagement when an organization is focused purely on compliance and risk mitigation. Stage two is systematic management and the organization starts to develop its reporting, target setting, certifications, and it begins to make some organizational and process development to align with those targets. Stage three 
is you start transforming the core. Sustainability strategy really drives your product and your process innovation, your revenue, your growth, as well as all your cost saving plans. And stage four, competitive differentiation. That's where your brand, your business model, your customer, your employee engagement, they're all driven by sustainability consideration to achieve competitive advantage and commercial gain. And that's transition from stage two to stage three is going to be the critical one over the next few years. The race to zero needs to become the race to trillions. We have that investment requirement of six trillion dollars per year globally, according to the best estimates that all for climate adaptation and mitigation measures. And two thirds of that needs to be invested in developing countries where we're currently seeing investment in the region of 60 to 80 billion dollars a year. That's a staggering investment gap. So sadly, no green bullets, but given the speed with which we need to act, it's absolutely clear we're going to need far closer alignment of public finance with capital markets. Second, we need a carbon tax, right? The markets respond to price signals, and these are a function of government policy, supervisory bodies, global standard setters. And at the moment, the markets, as we've heard, they're mispricing assets, they're not fully managing risks, and they're insufficiently evaluating performance because we're not taking into account climate change appropriately. It's a market failure and investors cannot correct market failures by ourselves. We've got to ensure that there's a pricing mechanism that works and that's the role of government, which is why an effective carbon tax is key. Third, education, integrating climate science and social metrics into everyday financial decision making is a pretty nascent area for most. And there's clearly a need to deepen the skills and capacity of the market's financial professionals to support customers and clients through a just climate transition. The skills that got us here may not get us where we need to go. And that is true from the analyst intake all the way up to board level. Thanks, panel. Thanks to you, Sharon Burrow. Thanks, uh, Rasan Roy. Thanks, Naeem Abu-Jaidi. And thanks, uh, Ria Marie Thomas. I learned a lot. Really dynamic. Thank you. <laughs>